The reason people aren't financially free is they don't know what to do and they don't know where to start. I want you to join Joey and I at the Virtual Inner Circle Live April the 4th through the 6th as we share with you the exact answers to those questions. We only do this event one time per year. I don't want you to miss out. Go to westwatwallstreet.com forward slash live and enter promo code podcast. When you're at this event, you're going to get your investor DNA. You're going to get access to up to six different passive income strategies. So you know, leaving this event, exactly what to do, taking our decades of knowledge so that you can start becoming financially free. Go to wealthwhitewallstreet.com forward slash live and enter the promo code podcast. Joey, did you ever watch the movie Cocktail that came out in the mid 80s? Unfortunately, Russ, just like the uh, litany of other movies you've asked me about, no. Uh, well, you've missed a, an amazing uh, average movie. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you asking me this, by the way? Well, today we're interviewing Kevin Bump, and he was sharing a story about how he learned how to uh, flip real estate when he was tending bar, and he left being a bartender and move from the cold of, you know, the Northeast to a really warm and sunny place. And it reminded me very much of Tom Cruise in the movie cocktail, where he was a bartender was learning about how to do stuff and wanted to be very successful. Was always reading books on investments and other things really, and okay. ultimately move to a very warm beachy area. And I thought, man, man. This, this is perfect chance for cocktail. Yeah. It looked like he took some notes or something. Well, if you've ever been interested in the mobile home park space, we're going to be talking a little bit about that after we kind of go through Kevin's story. But one of the interesting things that I took away from this interview, Joey, I didn't know that trailers weren't just sitting there with wheels or somebody had stolen the wheels and was just sitting on top of the ground. Did you know that they were actually bolted down to the ground? Yeah, come on, man. That's my, my mortgage days. You, you had to make sure that there was proper setup and all that. Like I knew, I knew all that. Come on. I seriously, I just thought like you could pull up with a, you know, trailer hitch and a, <laughs> and a dually and pull that thing away. Well, that, that would make it a lot harder to lend against like somebody. Hey, my, by the way, my house is gone. Somebody <laughs> stole it last night. <laughs> well, my dad always tried to convince me when I was in college that I should uh, drive this beat up RV that he had. They kept that on at the hunt camp. He's like, look, you get bored with where you live and you just drive it to another place. <laughs> I just assume you could do that with the trailer. But when, when he was explaining how it actually costs $5,000 to move a trailer from one location to another location locally, yeah, he said that is why people, the, the rents that they get, because whenever you own a mobile home park, you're not necessarily always owning the, the, the trailer themselves. A lot of time you may just own the dirt. And he's like, those renters are there for life. Yeah, they, they're not looking to move you know, nonchalantly, it has to be a major reason. Well, it, there's a lot of really interesting takeaways in this episode. Kevin Bupp is sharing amazing content on mobile home park investing. If you haven't already, join our community. Go to wealthwildwallstreet.com forward slash community and look Kevin up so that if you have a question that we didn't ask him on this episode, you can message him in the community in the app. Let's jump into this episode with Kevin Bupp. Welcome to the Wealth Without Wall Street podcast, your guide to understanding how to get out of the Wall Street rat race and start your own mailbox money lifestyle. Now, don't let these handsome Southern draws fool you. These financial minds are teaching our country to enhance savings, increase cash flow, and create passive income, all without the help 
of Wall Street. Are you ready to break through? Now here are your hosts, Russ Morgan and Joey Murray. Welcome to the show. Today we have a special guest, Kevin Bupp, joining us. Kevin, so glad to have you with us, man. Guys, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, the discussion before we press record was around being 19 years old, tending bar, was dating a girl. You went over to her house, met her her mom's boyfriend, and little did you know that was going to lead you on a three-day trip to learning how to buy and sell real estate. So tell us a little bit about that, because I think I have a 15-year-old, and I'm always interested of how I might be able to get them more engaged into creating streams of income. And clearly, you you got that exposure at a really early age. Yeah, no, no, it's 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 a great it's a great part of the story because I, honestly, guys, I don't know I don't know really where I would be in life if that part of the equation didn't happen. I um, as you had mentioned, I was tending bar. I was having fun, you know. I was tending bar. I uh, worked at a really cool bar, um, and uh, was making a lot of money at nineteen. You know, a lot of money for a nineteen year old was going to school and local community college. I, but I didn't I didn't really know what I wanted to do, man. I w- I feel like I was literally going through the motions. I was going to school to go to school because that's what you were supposed to do. But I, I wasn't excited about it. I didn't really have any goals as far as, you know, what I wanted to be when I grew up. Um, and so I just, again, I was kind of rolling with the motions. And so, you know, meeting David, Dave, David was that the gentleman's name that you'd mentioned that uh, ultimately was dating the mother of my girlfriend at the time. Uh, meeting him was, uh, it was an absolute blessing. Again, don't know where I'd be if I hadn't met Dave and he hadn't come my, into my life. And with that being said, I, you know, I grew up in a very, very, you know, middle-class blue collar family. Both my parents worked, um, provided for my brother and I, we went on one vacation a year. We never went without, you know, we didn't have a lot, but we didn't go without, you know, it's all relative. It's, it's what you know. And so things were good. I didn't grow up poor or anything like that. And I didn't grow up rich right in the middle. However, David lived a very different life, you know, and, uh, I got to know him from being over at my girlfriend's house and he didn't work during the week or I, I would see him during the week, typically when most of us would feel that adults should be at their nine to five, right? They should, you should not see them during the day. Um, uh, and, and, uh, he drove, always had like new cars, you know, he, he had a few cars and which was abnormal to me as well to have more than one car for one person. And, um, and he dressed really nice and just, he just seemed to carry himself very differently, you know, very different than what I knew growing up. And so I just became friends with him over a couple of months. And, and ultimately, long story short, he, in, he invited me to a three-day boot camp that he had paid for for him and his business partner to go to and his business partner couldn't attend. And um, I think, uh, you know, David asked me, thinking back, he asked me a lot of probing questions as we were getting to know each other, just, you know, about what I was going to school for, what I was studying. And I'm sure my answers were very vague because I had no idea. And I'm, yeah. you know, and again, looking back and reflecting on our early days of our, of our friendship is you probably saw this like lost, you know, 19 year old with no direction in life. And ultimately was trying to give me a hand up. Cause that, that's really what he did by inviting me there. Cause I had no idea what I was getting myself into guys. I, I didn't know anything about real estate. I had never read a book on real estate investing. Uh, I knew my parents owned a home. But that was, and I, I knew they actually paid to live there, right? Like not make money to live there. And so it was very foreign subject for me. But ultimately, I attended with him. And um, that three days really changed my life. You know, I didn't leave there immediately and go start buying or flipping houses. I left there very overwhelmed, but excited. And um, I knew that I knew I knew myself enough that that excitement would would wean pretty quickly if I didn't take action, but I was so overwhelmed. I didn't even know where to start. I mean, it was also foreign to me. And so I basically presented to David a kind of my, my, my sales pitch was, 
um, you know, he was a one man show. He did really well, but he was a one man show. And, you know, I'm sure you could use help somewhere in your business, David, right? You know, where are your weak points? Like, where do you find yourself wasting time? And uh, I knew technology was kind of a weak point for him. And so I basically offered my services in between tending bar and going to classes. Um, and that literally meant sometimes I was over there seven in the morning for a few hours. Sometimes I was over there late in the evening, middle of the day, wherever I could find time to help him. I was there and did it for about 14 months. And so I got to learn a lot over that period of time. And that was, I was 20 years old by then and bought my first property. And, uh, and that's what I've been doing ever since. I'm 41 now. And so 20 plus years, been a, a full-time real estate investor. I got to quit bartending, which was a kind of a sad day. It was a sad day. Lots of good stories, lots of great friendships made, but um, it was time to move on and, uh, and do big and exciting things. Well, Kevin, <laughs> I, I love the fact that you led with this, this story of a mentor. We've actually had multiple, multiple stories like that on our show. And I don't think it's on accident because success leaves clues. We've, we've talked about that a number of times. And what you did, the key thing that I heard you say is, is what everybody that's listening to this right now that hasn't achieved their financial freedom goal, they can easily do exactly what you did. They can go find the person who is doing life the way that they would want it to be done and they can offer what they have to give. And so, so if you're listening to this right now, I want you to pick up on that. Like, what is it? Take a personal inventory. And if it's time, I guarantee you, if you can give any amount of time to somebody that's at that level of success, they have something that they can, they need help with. I promise you, because time is their biggest commodity that they cannot get any more of, and you can offer that to them. So, man, I, I'm just inspired to hear that that you literally took it upon yourself to find a need and need it, and now what what has transpired as a result of that? It's just amazing. What about you, Russ? So, how about what what was the next step then? I mean, one, I mean, I, I kind of want to know what happened to David. Like, did did you like? you get all this information and, and, and you guys kind of parted ways after 12 months or 14 months and, and are you guys still connecting and doing deals? Like help me understand David's story before I, I, I want to learn more because, because <laughs> Joey, Kevin knows a ton about real estate investing and one of his niches is in the mobile home parks. So I want to make yeah, sure we got to get to that. We got to get sure. to that part, but I yeah, got to hear the David story. here. <laughs> no, no it's, a, it's a great question. Now we're still friends today. We live pretty far away from one another. So back then I lived in Pennsylvania. That's where I was born and raised. David lived in Pennsylvania. Uh, I think both of us ever really loved the cold weather or the dreary gray winters that you know, basically had to deal with for like five months out of the year. And so I never enjoyed that growing up and, and so I, I did a couple deals, um, you know, uh, uh, there for the first like literally two years um, and, and then decided that once I finished up my classes, I, I still finished out, you know, community college and, um, and was doing deals on the side, still tending bar for like the, you know, the next year making money, you know, because literally buying your first like, you know, single family property, like most folks don't turn on make six figures right out of the gate, right? So like I had to kind of do both simultaneously, you know, keep, you know, keep food on the table, what have you, keep a roof over my head while I was trying to build this business. And so Dave and I did some deals together, but ultimately at 22, I knew I wanted to go somewhere warm and um, Florida was it. And so I, I ultimately, I did some research. I just didn't haphazardly say I'm moving to the beach. I did some research as to, you know, growing markets, growing MSAs that still weren't, you know, they weren't, they weren't, um, you know, massive, massively large uh, metropolitan areas, but you know, kind of uh, small to mid tier, but were on a very progressive path. And one of those areas that I researched was Orlando. The other was Tampa. Orlando is about an hour and a half to the beach. 
uh, Tampa is much closer than that. And so I went down to visit Tampa. I fell in love. And so I moved to Tampa and started doing deals down there. And that's where I live today. I live over in the Clearwater Beach area. And so uh, I've been down in in, uh, in the Tampa Bay area for the last, you know, literally almost 20 years on like 19 years. So with that being said, where David's at today, David moved to California. So he is very far away and he still does deals uh, a little bit slower now. He's about 25 years older than I. And so he's at a different stage of his life, um, has done really well and uh, has kind of teetered things down over the last decade and just enjoying life and spending time with his wife. You know, he married my my ex-girlfriend's mother. And so they've been married now for like the last uh, 12 years and um, they're having fun together. So <laughs> David's still around. We don't do deals together anymore, but uh, we're still great friends, still talk often. But good deal. All right. Well, talk to us about kind of the progression that you went through. So you obviously started working in flipping houses, buying individual houses, you mentioned. Uh, talk a little bit about that. What was that learning curve like? Because there's someone listening to you right now who hasn't bought their first house, but they, they think maybe real estate is the way in the path. And so they're trying to figure out how does someone progress through this, going to a boot camp, learning what this is about to ultimately doing those first deals and moving forward where they're owning long-term rentals and other things. Yeah. You know, so the boot camp I went to was about uh, fixing and flipping and wholesaling real estate, but that wasn't really David's business model. David's business model was more of a buy and hold. He was all about buying uh, single family or small multifamily properties and you know fixing them, but keeping them for long-term rentals or annuities, what he called them, right? Something that would continue to pay him for years thereafter. And so I learned very quickly on the first deal, uh, I bought it with the intent of keeping it as a rental. I had some money saved up. I literally used the $7,000 I had saved up from tending bar. And I bought this first property. In addition to that 7,000, I had some private money that David kind of linked me up with through one of his partners. And I uh, bought that first deal with the intent of fixing it up and keeping it. But that couple hundred dollars a month of cash flow that I was receiving, I realized very quickly that it was gonna take me years to save up enough of that cash flow to buy another property. And so my model changed nearly after that first deal of, I was going to have to, in order to actually be able to keep properties like David had taught me, I was gonna to have to generate some type of capital. I was gonna to have to generate quicker capital. And so I really morphed my model into a, you know, wholesale two or three deals, keep one. Wholesale two or three deals, keep one. And, um, and ultimately I did that for a number of years before I had stacked enough capital, built enough relationships with private lenders and other sources of capital other than my own to actually start being able to buy and keep everything that I was acquiring. And so that was the initial progression of um, not being able to really keep and build a rental portfolio around the gate. I, got, I had to stack cash. And so I did that by wholesaling. And ultimately, um, you know, the first couple of years into it, I was starting to build a, you know, more and more of a single family portfolio. Uh, by the time I was, uh, I guess by the time I was 27, I had acquired about 125 single family homes and about another 500 smaller multifamily properties. So I had a pretty big rental portfolio. But what I learned, another big pivotal moment in that, in that, 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 that pattern of things, guys, was I learned how inefficient it was. Um, to own these single family properties. I mean, I, I worked really, you worked just as almost just as hard to buy one single family home as you would to buy one four unit building or one eight unit building. And so I, I started realizing that I didn't have kids. I didn't, I wasn't married. I had all the time in the world at, at that age in my early to mid twenties, but that wasn't always going to be the case. And I wanted to want to learn how to work more efficiently. And so that's where I really morphed. And that's where the progression turned more of a focus to multifamily commercial properties. Again, I had acquired some smaller multifamily properties, 
but it never done any of the larger deals. You know, deal, when I say larger deals, I mean you know, like 40, 50 units um, all in one location or larger. And so that's really where I started turning my business the opposite direction away from single family into the multifamily and then also the commercial world. Um, again, just really trying to gain efficiencies in my business. Right? Everyone's only got the same amount of time in the day. Everyone's got the same hours in their day. It's how efficiently can you use those hours in the day? Uh, it's going to determine your overall growth as a business or, you know, as a business and as an individual. So uh, I quickly learned that I was running out of time. And if I was going to have kids and a family, which I plan to at some point, um, I probably wouldn't have time for them if I continued down that same path. And so that was one of the other big shifts that occurred in my business. Well, it, it sounds like, I mean, the skills and the relationships and the capital, like you had, you had to build those yes. through that single family, like the, the time you spent in that space. Yes. And then you're like, well, wait a minute, this applies at scale. Why wouldn't I scale the, the efficiency starts to take place mm -hmm. now? What about what year was that? So Did this you started is to make that transition back in like 2004 to 2007, right in those, those three years prior to the crash leading up to the crash of 2008. All right, so then take us through the crash because uh, everybody's got varied results through that. Yeah, the crash was fairly ugly. Um, you know, there, there's a few parts in the uh, of the country that ultimately became like a ground zero that got impacted a little more than others. Uh, Florida being one of them, S Southern Florida being one of them. Um, you know, Las Vegas being another one. Phoenix, Arizona, and some of the other large uh, Arizona markets. California. So there was a few states and a few markets that just got crushed in comparison to the rest of the country. Um, you know, South Florida was one of them, uh, pretty much all of Florida, pretty much all of Florida got crushed, um, in a big way. And a lot of it was due to at least, you know, it was market specific. So a lot of it in our area was due to, uh, speculative building. And so there were builders, they were building rooftops for populations that were not coming here. I mean, people were moving to Florida, don't get me wrong, but they were building rooftops nonstop. And back then, you know, it's, it's funny thinking back of how ridiculous it was there would be a pre-construction home, a subdivision going up, pre-construction home, but literally the contract for that pre-construction home before they even broke ground might flip three times and three people made profits off of it before they even like started erecting it out of the ground. It's, you think back like that's so silly. Anyway, so what, what ultimately occurred is when the subprime mortgage market crashed here, we had a lot of excess inventory. We had a ton of it. And so uh, being in the rental space, uh, what we ended up with is a lot of brand new homes that were just sitting there. And a lot of the markets I was in, uh, there was lots of these brand new rooftops and a lot of builders started trying to you know, put band-aids on their wounds and start renting these properties out, right? Start renting them out to, we didn't have more population coming in. In fact, people were leaving Florida at that point because a lot of it was relying on construction, job, construction jobs. And so there was no more construction. People were leaving Florida for a period of time. And so everyone was vowing for that same tenant. And so we went through a very challenging first like year where we were losing occupancy. Basically people had the option now to live in our 15 or 20 year old home for call it $900 a month or for maybe $1,000 a month, I can live in this brand new 322, right? That was just built, never lived in. And so we, we saw a massive drop in our occupancy, but not even that, we had to start offering concessions because now you had this oversupply, which was basically forcing apartment operators um, single family home, landlords, what have you, to offer incentives for people to come come to my property, right? I'll give you three months free, or I'll give you a big screen TV or whatever it might be. That was incredibly painful. It got to the point to where we, even though we had a ton of equity in our properties prior to you know, leading into the crash, I guess you could say, 
um, you know, those rent rebates or discounts or occupancy challenges uh, created a turned a, ca- a positive cash flow machine into a negative cash flow machine mm. uh, to where we were writing checks on a monthly basis. In addition to that, the Florida market crashed so fast. I mean, when we saw it start to come, we started trying to unload our properties and we were discounting them first at 10 percent, 15 percent. 20%. And we literally couldn't discount them fast enough to sell them off, to get them off our books. And when we went into the crash, our LTV across the board was fairly low. It was like in the, in the low 60% range. So, oh, I mean, wow. we, were, we weren't over leveraged per se, but within 12 to, 12 to 18 months, we were over leveraged because majority of our properties dipped. Below, we were upside down on about 85% of our properties within a year and a half. That's how much value got lost in certain parts of Florida. And so now, so now, not only were you upside down, you also had this negative cash flow, just alligator, you know, eating away at whatever, whatever savings we had. And unfortunately, at that initial stages of the crash, like in the first year, banks were not prepared for this. Banks didn't have loss mitigation departments that did workouts with borrowers. It didn't exist because they never, they'd never had any type of a, a fallout such as what was occurring. And so, in the initial twelve months, not many of the banks we had loans with. Uh, would even work with us because they didn't know how bad it was going to get right they were yeah. basically like you need to deal with it you need to figure this out guys and we couldn't figure it out it was too big of a problem to figure out and so ultimately we had to make the strategic decision to to cut the core and stop making start uh, stop making payments on a lot of our our loans to banks you know banks that would work with us we'd work with them we tried to you know push through it together but a large majority weren't willing to work with us and so it became very ugly very quick and, um, and it took a couple of years to, to really dig out of it. I mean, it, was a, it wasn't an overnight process. I mean, it was a, about a three-year process of really damage control and, and being on the uh, defensive, um, trying to get through that really, really challenging time. So uh, I lost pretty much everything, even my primary residence. I mean, my bank accounts got garnished. You know, it was, um, it got fairly severe, I would say. No doubt. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Are you looking for ways to implement ideas get exposure to new ones and be surrounded by people on the same journey as you. Joey, where can they go to do that? Go to wealthwithoutwallstreet.com forward slash community. You can join for free today. So Kevin, you're you're an expert in the the mobile home space, mm-hmm. right? That's something that you um you've been able to do. So talk a little bit about why uh, why mobile home parks, right? You had experience with single family. Mm-hmm. You, you had moved into commercial space a little bit. What was the appeal to go into the mobile home park space? Yeah. So reflecting back on what was right and what was wrong with with my prior business, so sim- single family, some smaller multifamily properties, I realized quickly again that the the multifamily were much more efficient to operate. Right, I could buy. It, it made more sense to have ten units in one location versus ten spread amongst an entire county. It's just sure. many more efficiencies there. And so I, moving forward as I went to rebuild, I knew it was going to be multifamily. I wanted to do larger multifamily projects just for the efficiencies and the scale. And um, in about 2011, I got introduced to a guy. Uh, by the name of Randy, by just a mutual friend. You know, I, I've always been a proponent of meeting new people as often as possible. Like your your net worth is equal to your net worth. And so, you know, just given the opportunity, I want to meet other successful folks. And so my my one of my friends suggested I go have lunch with this guy, Randy, other for no other reason than Randy was a banker for 30 plus years, really smart guy, just retired and uh just a fun guy to get to know. And so I went and met with Randy and found out that Randy owned mobile home parks. And this this was in 2011 when I was kind of repl- I was planning my rebuild as to what I was going to do 
now that I'm grown up and I got to start all over again. And uh, I had no idea that Randy owned mobile home parks. I just knew that he had been a banker. But when he retired, he bought a number of mobile home parks because uh, he had lent on them for a number of years, realized that his borrowers, you know, the owners of those parks were making more money than he was. And that's what he was going to do when he retired. <laughs> and uh, ultimately, over a two, two hour lunch with Randy, I gave him my, my, my big picture of what I was going to do in the multifamily space, why apartments were great. And Randy basically beat me up left and right as to why mobile home parks were better than apartments and why I should look at that asset class because it's much more underserved, um, you know, not as uh, on the radar of big investors and, and what have you. And that, uh, you know, I should consider that before I go down the path of multifamily. And he, and he intrigued me enough during that two hour lunch with him that I literally left there and kind of committed to myself that. I'm going to buy a mobile. I'm going to learn as much as I can. I'm going to buy a mobile home park or sometime over the next 12 months. You know, I kind of gave myself a 12 month window. I'm going to buy one and either, you know, prove Randy right or prove Randy wrong. One of the two. And, uh, it took me a little longer than 12 months. It took me about, about 14 months to buy one. And, uh, we bought that and we literally, I just sold that the other week. It was the very first park I bought back in 2012. Just sold it the other week. Um, but I bought that park in, in Atlanta and uh, it went really well. Bought a, a second one, went really well. Bought a third one, went really well. And ultimately turned it into a little bit more of a business than just me buying mobile home parks and uh, brought on a partner, opened up a few different funds. And uh, now we own mobile home parks and what was 13 states. We've just exited out of a few states. So we're in 11 states today and, um, and we're pretty, pretty knee deep in the space. Can, can you walk me through that deal in Atlanta since that was the first one you just, yeah. you just exited it. You said it went well, you bought it, you, you owned it for, you know, nine years. Mm -hmm. What went well? Like walk me through the mechanics. If I've yeah. never owned a mobile home park before, I probably don't even understand what that means. Yeah. And I will say that, you know, 2012 was a very different time in real estate than 2021 as far as where prices were. There was still distress in the marketplace that was carried over from 2008. And so we bought that property as an REO. Uh, it had uh, gone back to the bank two, year, two years prior. It was in receivership and uh, basically was being poorly managed. And so the, uh, the receiver, uh, through the corner ported process, put the property on the market. And, uh, and we bought it as a, as a bank owned property. And so it was in major distress. Uh, it was a small property, it was 34 units. And um, there were literally two, there was two people living in this entire community. Uh, and those two people weren't even paying rent. There were squatters in some of the units. A lot of them had been vandalized and damaged. And so it was a massive project, but we, we picked it up literally for um, two hundred thousand dollars in total. Um, so, which again, uh, let me, I'm going to repeat yeah. back what I just heard. Yeah, you bought thirty five <laughs> units, thirty four people, thirty four. Two people were living in them, and they weren't even paying. That's right. That's right. All the and all the all the rest were empty. So there's thirty. There's thirty two units in the community. Um, so there's two va vacant spaces that didn't have homes on them. No, this sounds like the sort of deal you would bring me. Like this Man, is a brilliant idea. I, I'm all over this. Okay, I, so I'm, you're gonna have to sell me as to why. That, yeah, that yeah. was attractive. To here's you. here's it. Yeah, here 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 was here was how I made the decision. And I this is the first park. And I had done a ton of renovations. And so I've dealt with the C class demographic. I've done major rehabs. So the construction part of it, because we had to renovate every single unit. They were in really poor shape. Had a bad uh, bad reputation. I've dealt with all that before, so that wasn't all that new to me. The mobile home park itself, like that asset class, like the vehicle itself was new to me, but the rest wasn't. Um, and so there were some unknowns, but not too many unknown variables that I couldn't get comfortable with. But how I looked at this thing is it came with 
uh, of those 32 occupied spaces in there, 29 of them were homes that we were acquiring with the sale. So 29 of those mobile homes that were in there, we were, that was part of the sale. And even in the condition that they were in, I knew that a worst case scenario, I could fire sale each one of those. Literally, without a doubt, I could fire sale each one of those for five to seven grand quick and sell them without it. Like they would fly off the shelves at that price. And a worst case scenario, if, if you know if things did not work out, I would be able to get all my money back and still ultimately have a piece of property. You know, not, wh whether it's worth anything or not, I'm not sure, but I'd be able to get all my money back out of it should things not go as planned. So that was literally, that's how I sold myself, and and I did have one partner, uh, like an like an active partner in that deal that I brought into it, and um, that's how I sold the two of us on. This is why we should do this deal because worst case scenario, we get our money back and we move on to the next one, and right. um, and it obviously went way better than that. It it did go way better than that. It took some time, but um, you know, I know that we don't have too much time to show that. There's a funny story with that one as to with the local mayor. The mayor threatened us that if we bought it, he would shut us down and all kinds of stuff. But uh, maybe for another time. <laughs> but we still went forward with it and paid 200, put about another uh, 200 into it, renovations. And then uh, um, it cash flowed like crazy. We got our all of our original capital back out. We did a refinance, I think, at year four. Got all of our original capital back out of it. And it still cash flowed net to us um, about a hundred thousand dollars a year. So you know, fifty fifty. We're fifty fifty on so fifty thousand a piece. So net after all expenses, uh, debt service, what have you. And so we were whole at that point, and we've made a lot of money over the years with it. And we just sold it again a couple of weeks ago for one point two five million. So that one turned out pretty well. I'd, I'd say that went well. Yeah. Yeah. So how did yeah? So how do you evaluate parks today? Right. I, obviously, that experience gives you um, insight into making decisions as you buy parks today. Are you still looking for that value add component when you go out and try to buy a park? How are you guys making decisions as you acquire new properties? No, it's, it's a great question. Um, you know, a couple things is number one, we wouldn't buy a park that small today. You know, it just it, it doesn't doesn't have enough meat on the bone for us because now we're a little bit larger of an organization. We have overhead, we have staff, we have uh, you know multiple investors, and so when you start slicing up the pie, multiple different ways, that that size of a deal just wouldn't really fly for us. Not that that not that someone couldn't make money on that today. They surely could, but it wouldn't be substantial enough for us to want to have an interest or get involved. And so the minimum size that we'll consider today is about 80 to 100 spaces. So much larger community. Um, as far as value add, yeah, we're still, we're, we are value add investors. That's, that's, that's what we do. That's what we're really good at. Um, with that being said, again, everyone's only got a certain amount of hours in a day. Everyone's only got a certain amount of bandwidth. And we do have a team. Even that team has a certain bandwidth. And so we try to be conscious of how many value-add projects we bring into the equation at one time and how value-add are they. Are they like this one where it literally had it had no no cash flow, had no revenue whatsoever, and it was going to be basically a, um, an alligator eating any money we had for quite a period of time before it started paying for itself. That's challenging. We don't do deals like that today because we just we don't have the ability. Like we would burn through too much cash, and it would be very inefficient with our time and resources. So most of the value add projects we do today, um, they do they are producing cash flow and producing revenue out of the gate. But we know there's a lot more to go. Right there's a, there's a, there's a lot more upside potential. Um, but then in addition to that, you know, with our fund structure, we've got different groups of investors in our fund. We've got we've got some uh, you know some investors that. They need to hit it out of the park. They're okay taking a little bit more risk, which would equate to a value add deal, but they want to get higher returns. And we've got plenty of investors that have already been there. They've they, like they've made their money. They're just looking to preserve it now. They're a different stage of their their investing life. 
and they just need to preserve their cash. So they're not willing to take as high of risk. They want lower risk and they're okay with buying deals that don't have as much upside. They're just stable deals. They're just going to chug along their coupon clippers, and, but they're not going to produce the types of returns that a value add deal might do. And so we do both now. We do both types of deals. So we, if it's okay, we had a few people in our community just ask questions, knowing that we were sure. going to be talking to a mobile home guru. Um, so Gabrielle asked a very specific question about, um, like, how do you help with like the weather um, forces, like forces of weather against tornadoes and things like that in these mobile home parks? Has that been an issue, or how do you plan for that? Yeah, no, that's a great, that's a that's a great question. Um, obviously, it seems like anytime you turn on the news, if there has been a some type of severe weather, like a tornado, hurricane, that they've always like focused on the mobile home parks that got like ripped rip, ripped away, right? Well, yeah. It's just gonna give the greatest, you know, live TV. That's interview. it, man. I think that's I remember when I first got into the business. I remember someone uh, when they asked me what I did, I told them they're like, "Oh, you buy tornado torpedoes." I'm like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> But so I'll say this, uh, first and foremost, ho mobile homes that are built today um, are, 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 are kept to a st very strict standard by HUD. And so most of the home, all the homes that are built today, you know, at least for even the past like couple decades are built to the same standards as a single family home. Um, meaning like they can withstand like down here in Florida, like we're in zone two here in the Tampa Bay area. So mobile homes can withstand literally 125 mile an hour sustained winds, right? They're built the same type of windows, same type of, um, you know, frame construction as a single family home might be built with. The only difference is they're blocked, they're strapped down to the ground. Even with that being said, they're strapped, they're strapped deep with anchors into the ground. And so a lot of times you'll see newer mobile homes that could survive a storm where, you know, a 40 year old stick builder block home wouldn't. Right. And so now with that being said, prior to 1978, that's when HUD got kind of involved and started putting strict guidelines on, on mobile home builders. A lot of the mobile homes that really get torn up and get damaged are the older homes that were just, again, they weren't built to very strict standards. Doesn't mean that they were junk, but they just, they weren't built to the same standards as a house might be built today. Um, and so that's part of it. So I just, I want to make sure everyone's aware that like if, if, if an F4, F5, hits a mobile home park, it's going to do damage no matter what. If it hits a subdivision, it's going to do the same damage, right? Like if it's a direct hit. Now, what we do to protect ourselves outside of that, because we don't have parks that have 100% brand new homes in them. We've got old homes in there. Right. We carry loss of uh, uh, income insurance or business interruption insurance. And so that's one of the big things we do. We, we over-insure on that side, especially in areas like in Oklahoma and Kansas where tornadoes are prevalent. Um, you know, Florida, kind of same thing with hurricanes, but loss of uh, business income insurance. And so that will be basically paid for that lost revenue for up to 18 months. In addition to that, um, we, we are uh, on the FEMA list on every state that we're in. We're on the FEMA list. And whenever a natural disaster occurs, FEMA is always looking for places for temporary housing. The quickest place for them to get temporary housing is in a mobile home park or an RV park that already has the infrastructure in place. And so we're on their list. They know that we, if we have available spaces, they can put temporary housing in our communities and they pay us for it. The government pays us for it. So um, it's a very good plan B. It's a solid plan B. Like um, uh, Lake Charles, Louisiana, you know, a, a hurricane uh, smashed there, smashed through there a couple months back. And I've got a number of friends that own communities there. And a couple of them were almost complete losses. And within literally a matter of three months, um, majority of their spots were filled with temporary FEMA homes, which they're getting paid by the government for those that lot rent. And so as those FEMA homes start going over the next couple of years, new homes will be waiting to come back in.
And so it will be a progression. It's not a perfect progression. It's a yeah. stressful time, but there there's plan B's and plan C's in place for, you know, damage such as that to a mobile home park. We had another question. Uh, Sri in our community says he buys uh, distressed notes, uh, first first and second lien notes. Mm-hmm. And he's he said he's been away, like gone away from the mobile homes because he doesn't know how to value them. How would you how would you value a mobile home? In, in his case, he's talking about buying the note on it. On the mobile home itself. Yeah. I mean, just like in a single family home, every every market's a little different. You could take the same exact year making model mobile home and put it in Florida and it have one value and put it in Oklahoma and probably have a very different value to it, just depending on the market as such. But there's a um they don't call it a blue book, but there's the almost the same thing as the Kelly Blue Book for cars. Yeah. They have the same thing for mobile homes. I think it's actually put out by NADA. And I, I, I forget the exact name of it because we don't use it because it's not necessarily relevant to how we run our business. But there is a resource, a national resource that all dealers use because there's mobile home dealers across the country that take trade-ins and things like that. And so there is a national resource. You just have to do a little bit of digging. Start with NADA. Um, and I believe on their website, you can find uh, a way to access a, you know, a, a price list or a, you know, a approximate value list for any mobile home you're making model throughout the country. Awesome. Well, I, we've got a lot of questions. We're not going to be able to get to them all. Uh, Kevin, are you willing to come into the community and uh, be a member and let people ask some of these yeah. questions? Because I think maybe we can just absolutely Kevin like live and let him respond as he has the ability to do that. That'd be awesome. I'll make sure, sure uh, we, we, if you want to have your question answered with Kevin, like make sure you join the community. If you're not already a member, go to wealthwildwallstreet.com forward slash community. Join almost 4,000 other people who are on that journey to financial freedom. And, and being able to connect with people like Kevin, because this is amazing when someone has an expertise in a specific area to be able to get that sort of feedback uh, right away is awesome. All right. Here, here's the thing as we wrap up, Kevin, I just think of the there's a reason why this makes sense. Right. There's a reason why you've gone down this road and other people are going down a different passive income road. And so, you know, sell Joey as to why he and I need to be looking into buying mobile home parks or investing in mobile home parks. But when you're, you're asked this question, I'm sure all the time at dinner parties and stuff like that, when people ask you and they bring up the tornado torpedo and then you're like, yeah, but, <laughs> but here, but here's the, so what to that discussion, talk to us about those three or four points that just yeah. we need to know about that maybe makes sense for us as we look for other passive income sources. Yeah, that, that, that's a great question. And, you know, first and foremost, we can all agree that there's a an affordable housing crisis in this country, right? It, that the, the demand is not being met. And so mobile home parks fit that void quite well. Um, you could take any any city in the country. I don't care. Pick pick one uh, wherever you guys are right now. And I can promise you that it is cheaper, not not less of a quality, but it is cheaper for a family of four to live in a mobile home inside a mobile home park and probably actually have more space and have their own little yard and have a place to park their car, cheaper than them to live in the equivalent apartment in the same town. So if it's a C-grade mobile home park, C-grade apartment, I could promise you it's cheaper for them to live in that mobile home. And they also have a little slice of their own, right? Their own little yard. And so it's a, um, it, it fills that void quite well. In addition to that, it's the cheapest form of housing on the planet. Literally, if you if you can't afford that, our average lot rent across the board uh, throughout all of our communities is right around 350 a month. Some states higher, some markets higher, some lower, but 350 a month. There is nowhere in any given city in this country that you could comfortably live with a family of four for that price a month. It just doesn't exist. 
you know, so your only option at that point in time is literally being homeless. That, that, that is really it. So it's a great housing option, sometimes a nicer quality than an apartment at a much lower price point. So that's one. Another one from an owner's perspective, um, you know, mobile home parks have very low turnover in comparison to that of a, an apartment because most of our tenants are homeowners. They own the home itself and they rent the land underneath it. These homes are very expensive to move. On average, a single wire costs about $5,000 to relocate and reset in another community, assuming it's local. The average resident doesn't have $5,000. And even if they did, there's more than likely not a reason enough to justify moving it from one park to the next park to spend five thousand to do so, like you would, you would never probably recoup that capital lost or outlay to move that home. And so we have very, very, very little turnover in our communities because these are homeowners. They treat it like a subdivision. They treat it like a neighborhood. They get to know their neighbors. We've got some tenants that have lived in our parks for more than forty years. Obviously, way before we ever owned them, but forty plus years. A lot of times they become generational. They, they, you know, they have kids that they, you know, give their houses to or their mobile homes to, and uh, they've got generations that live in these parks. And so. That's another big one. And then, you know, the last one, which was one of the big ones that Randy really caught my attention with, and there's many others, but this is the big one. Mobile home parks is the only asset class that has a diminishing supply. What that means is that there's less new supply coming on to the market in any given year than there are that go away, meaning get redeveloped, shut down for you know, a variety of reasons. And so it creates a very massive supply demand imbalance. And so the reason why that's so beneficial to us is that I know that I can buy a mobile home park in a great market, right? I want to focus on the market, a great market that's got a high demand for affordable housing. It's got great school districts because everyone, even if you know the poorer folks want to send their people, their kids to good schools, right? And so I know I can buy a mobile home park in a great market and I don't have to worry about an oversupply of mobile homes or mobile home parks. I don't have to worry about developer going down the road and building a new community. It just, it doesn't exist for a variety of reasons that maybe we can get into uh, in your community on Facebook, but there's a massive barrier to entry and a, and a diminishing supply, which again, creates a you know, very significant supply demand imbalance. So there's a couple of the big points, um, many others that we could talk about, but those are some of the huge ones that really set us apart from a lot of the other investment vehicles that are out there. That's awesome. So Kevin, um, for the folks that want to learn more about mobile home park investing or more about you, where would you want us to point it to? Uh, you can go to my uh, company website, sunrisecapitalinvestors.com. There you can learn about our company, what it is we do, more about mobile home parks. And then uh, again, as you guys had mentioned, I'd love to join your community. I'll be in there. And so if you have other questions regarding mobile home park investing or anything specific to mobile home parks, uh, be more than happy to answer for you. Man, that's so awesome. Thank you, Kevin, for coming in and sharing that. Thank you for listening to this podcast. As always, we hope you will uh, find your course to get to financial freedom faster. And we will see you on the next episode. This has been the Wealth Without Wall Street podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show to break free of the Wall Street mindset and begin building wealth on your own terms in places you understand so that your wealth will never run dry. See you next episode.